0: Have you ever been thirsty? Ever had a, a moment in your life, and I'm not talking about like you could use a drink of water. I mean, you can't think of anything else. You, you ever had that moment where your your tongue is sticking to the roof of your mouth and you are desperate to drink again? I've, I've had several moments in my life like that, but one stands out. The first time I really experienced thirst, I I was a a freshman in high school, and I had just gone out for the uh, cross-country team, and um, my uh, brothers were a lot more talented than I was, and as the team ran out, our coach told us he wanted us to go to um, Apollo Park. We were... Over on J and 30th I was at Desert Christian High School and we're going to run out to Apollo Park and then turn around and come back and so I, I run out there but um, I was a freshman, I was a new runner I wasn't a, a natural runner and so um, as I as I ran out there I sort of fell off the back of the pack and I found myself all alone behind everybody else in the middle of the desert and um, But my coach had told us that he would be waiting for us at the park when we got there with water. Uh, By the time I got to the park, uh, he had forgotten about me. Um, And so I turned around um, and actually I tried to get a drink in the park and the drinking fountain wasn't working. So I turned around and I started running back to Desert Christian. I I ran down uh, 40th West over to Avenue I and I was running down this road right here stuck in my head. As I was running, my, my tongue was stuck to the roof of my mouth. I couldn't, I couldn't swallow. I didn't have enough saliva to swallow. I was desperate for water. All I could think about was water. I don't think I would have kept running if I wasn't so thirsty. As I ran along, I noticed a raven on the telephone pole next to me. He would fly to the next telephone pole and then wait for me. And then fly to the next one and then wait for me. I I was wondering, does he know something I don't? I was desperately thirsty. When I got back to the high school, I grabbed my water jug and I started drinking. I actually drank so much I got sick. But I was desperate for water. I was so thirsty. I think that, that thirst is something that's so common to humanity. That's why Jesus chooses that as an illustration of our need for the holy spirit we understand thirst and so he chooses to use that to symbolize our deeper need for him now the jews they they would have understood what jesus was teaching because of when he chose to say it do you remember where we are in the story we're in john chapter 7 And Jesus has just now gone down to the Feast of Tabernacles. And he's celebrating there. He's teaching there. And we're in John 7, verse 37. And it says, and on the last day of the feast, the most important day. Now, for a Jew, they'll understand what that means. For us, we don't know what that means. So so I want to share with you a little bit about the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles tabernacles. Here's a a picture of a modern celebration of the feast of tabernacles. The the last day of this feast is called Hashanah Rabbah. Hashanah Rabbah. And that, that literally means the great salvation. Hashanah Rabbah is a celebration that God preserved the lives of the children of Israel in the wilderness wanderings and he sent them water from a rock he provided for them. They celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles at the end of harvest because God has given them food. He has provided for them. It's a celebration of his miraculous provision. But it not only remembers what has happened in the past, it also looks forward to the day that the prophet Joel spoke of when God would pour out his spirit on them. So they remember the water being poured out from the Rock and they're looking forward to his spirit being poured out on them. You see, something that the Jews understood that I think we have trouble understanding, they understood this, this tabernacle that we have, that we go in and we worship in, the reason God gave us the specifications for the measurements for everything in it is because it's a reflection of something that's real in heaven. This is, our, this is the one made with hands, but there's one that's not made with hands. And they understood that just like God took care of their physical needs, he would take care of their deeper spiritual needs. I think sometimes as people who see with our eyes, we think that when we see a metaphor in Scripture, it's a lesser reality. The Jews would have understood, no, it's a greater reality they would have understood the tabernacle reflects something that's far greater in the heavens and so when they saw god providing water from a rock they understood that's pointing forward to something greater and jesus understood that and that's why on this day he chooses to make himself known in jerusalem the the priests would go down and what you see him right here he has this this golden pitcher and he's drawing water out of the pool of siloam after he drew the water out, he would, they would go and they would march in procession with the choir behind the priest singing the Hallel from Psalm 113 through 118. They would go through this series of psalms It would be very celebratory. As they drew near to the temple, they'd go up to the altar and they would reach the end of the Hallel right there. And they would say these words from Psalm 118 verse 25, Lord, save us. Lord, please grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God and has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will give you thanks. You are my God. I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his faithful love endures forever. They would reach this last stanza and they would repeat it three times. They would remind each other, Our God is good, his faithful love, his has endures forever. And then the priest would take that, that pitcher and he would pour it out at the base of the altar. But he wouldn't just pour out water because, you see, in the morning they would give a drink offering of wine. And so they did these two simultaneously. So he'd pour out water and wine simultaneously right there at the foot of the altar. Can you guys picture this? The water, the wine are being poured out. God's provision for them and ultimately his provision of his spirit it's at this moment this last day of this feast this great day that jesus stands up in john 7 37 says this on that day the last day of the feast jesus stands up and cries out if anyone is thirsty let him come to me and drink See, the Jews would understand what Jesus is saying. They understand this is a celebration that looks back, but it also looks forward. And now Jesus is standing up. He's saying, it's here, guys. It's time to drink. And he goes on. The one who believes in me. I'm sorry, guys. I'm having some technical difficulties here. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the spirit for the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now, if, if we didn't have verse 39 right here as non-Jews, we wouldn't understand the spiritual significance of what Jesus is doing. That's why John writes it. He wants people to understand what he's talking about. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. The Jews, though, they would have understand. They would have got that. See, what Jesus is pointing out right here is that he wants to quench our thirst with the Holy Spirit. He wants to provide for our deepest need with his Holy Spirit. When he says, come to me, all who are thirsty, what he's saying is, you need my spirit to dwell inside of you, and I want to give it to you. And what I see in the text is that there's two responses to Jesus' offer. There's two different responses that people have when they hear this amazing offer. Come to me, all who are thirsty. Anyone who believes in me, out of his innermost being, will issue forth rivers of living water. There's two responses. The first response is that some people believe that, and they receive that. He points this out. You can see it in the passage, the people who believe and receive. Verse 39, do you see those words there? Look from the text. Read the Bible. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit. So some people were going to believe in him and receive the Spirit. Now here's something. I think that sometimes we don't remember this when we're reading the Bible. We don't understand the disciples who are following Jesus, their experience when they Understood who Jesus was when they made that confession and they got saved, their experience wasn't the same as ours. Do you understand? Today, when I recognize who Jesus is and I make the good confession and I confess him as my Lord, instantly I am indwelt and sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. As soon as I trust Jesus as my Savior, as soon as I give my life to him, I am indwelt continuously. Jesus promises to never leave me or forsake me. That didn't happen for Peter when he made the good confession. Do you guys know that? The Holy Spirit wasn't given yet. And John points that out to us. He wants us to understand that their experience was not like ours. The Holy Spirit had not yet been given. The Holy Spirit was among them, but he was not yet Within them. I want you to understand that when you read about Old Testament saints, we have what they longed for. None of them got to experience the relationship with God that we as new covenant believers experience every single day. Scripture says they longed to see our day, they looked forward to it the day when God's Spirit would come and dwell within. People. They were looking forward to the reception of the Spirit that we get. Now, I want to point out to you who Jesus makes this available to. Look back two verses at verse 37. It says this Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's not saying, If anyone proves himself worthy, if anyone does all of these good deeds, If if anyone crawls to Mecca on his knees, right? He doesn't give us anything like that. If anybody makes three pilgrimages every year to Jerusalem, he doesn't say something like that. He says, "Are you thirsty? Good, come here. I have what you need." If anyone is thirsty, and here's the deal: we're all thirsty. Every single one of us, we have inside of us this longing for something the world cannot satisfy. And we recognize it, we realize it every time we try to satisfy it with something that's not God. I don't need to explain that to you. You know that because you're human. I get that because I'm human also. But what I want to point out to you is not that you're thirsty, you know that. What I want to point out to you is what's offered to you. Throughout Scripture, this water is described in detail. I want to go to one passage that points it out in the Psalms. In Psalm 36, verse 7, the psalmist writes, "...how priceless your faithful love is, God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They are filled from the abundance of your house. You let them drink from your refreshing streams." There's that that same phrase, God's faithful love, his hased. The psalmist is enthralled with this because he knows that God has abundance in his house. And what God is saying is, hey, my house is your house. My things are your things. I want to share my abundance with you. And not just that, but he invites us to drink from his refreshing stream. Now look at the next verse. Look what he says. For the wellspring of life is with you. By means of your light, we see light. The wellspring of life is with God, and he's inviting us to drink of that. What is he inviting us to drink of? The wellspring of life. Do you remember your state before you were saved? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Do you remember that? But God, who is rich in His mercy, what did He do? He invited you to drink this water, this wellspring of life. See what Jesus is inviting us to imbibe into ourself is the Holy Spirit, and He brings our dead bodies to life. Remember that that picture that Ezekiel saw of those dead bones, and they He prophesies to them, and flesh comes upon them. But then, what does He have to do? He has to prophesy to the wind, the ruah. The Spirit, and it breathes into them, and they come to life. The Holy Spirit is symbolized in Scripture with water and with wind. He's inviting us to come to life. And here's the thing. What He's offering is what you crave. What He's offering is the only thing that will satisfy As as meditating on this, the words of uh, the the hymn, Jesus, I am resting, came into my mind. And and the hymn writer writes this, she, she says, And thy love, so pure, so changeless, satisfies my heart, satisfies its deepest longings, meets, supplies my every need. When I think about the water that Jesus offers, I think about something that satisfies my deepest longings that meets and supplies my every need now what i want to do is back in the passage i want to point out what happens to the one who receives this water to the one who believes in me as scripture has said will have streams of living water flow from deep within him what jesus explains is if you receive this it's going to transform you from the inside out if you drink this living water, it's going to transform you from the inside out. You can't drink this water and leave the same. It doesn't work that way. You will be changed. What flows into your soul will come out in your life. Don't be deceived. When you drink this water, it flows from deep within you. That word he uses for within you. It could be translated your, your stomach. Some translations say your heart. It means your innermost being. You see, our problem is, our innermost being is depraved. And if we're going to have good flow from within us, something has to change. Look, look what Jesus says about our hearts in Luke 6, 45. He says this, "...a good person produces good out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up in his heart, for his mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart." Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So that's a problem because guess what? Every single one of us were born in sin. We are depraved when we come into this world. Our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The Lord does. But here's the reality. Because I have an evil heart, nothing good can come out of me unless I drink this water. You see, this water, what it does for it—for living water to come from my innermost being, my innermost being has to change. That's what Titus is talking about when he says the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Ghost. What Jesus is offering here is regeneration. What he's talking about is what he's going to ratify with the new covenant in his blood. That we can be transformed by the holy spirit's life in us you you can't produce good out of the good stored up in your heart you need a new heart that's what he's giving that's what happens when you drink this water he transforms your heart listen to how the writer of hebrews describes the activity of this water upon our heart look at hebrews 10 22 Now, I'm going to read this to you, and I'm going to give you homework as I read it. You need to look for two things that water does to our hearts. So look in the passage, and as I read it, think of two things that water does. See if you can get them in your head before I point them out to you. That's just my way of keeping you awake. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed in pure water. Do you see the two activities of water here? Has to do with our hearts and our bodies. Look at our hearts. What is water doing to our hearts? It's sprinkling our hearts clean from an evil conscience. What does that mean? Do you understand? When you're born, you're born broken. Do you get that? When you're born, you're not innocent. If you, if you don't believe me, then spend some time with a baby or a toddler. And you're one of my friends, actually a big part of him coming to Jesus was having children. And he's like, oh, wow, yeah, original sin. The man is depraved. Okay, I get it now, right? And like before he had kids, he literally would not believe me when I would say that to him. Then once he had kids, he's like, all right, bro, I believe you. Our conscience is broken. It's evil. When you drink this water, it's healed your conscience it's your moral compass and before you come to Jesus before you receive this Holy Spirit you're able to sin and be okay with it you know just you just got to get over it you just got to keep on sinning and you'll get used to it And, and that's what you do and your conscience gets more and more calloused and living in sin feels more and more natural for you Well, when you drink this water, it fixes your moral compass. And now you have a true north. And what that means is not that you're going to always go north. What it means is you know where it is. What it means is you know when you're walking in sin. It means you know when there's something you're supposed to do and you're not doing it. You know that. And as long as you're walking away from it, you're miserable. You can't stand disobeying God. You are miserable while you're walking in sin. That's what it means to have your conscience sprinkled clean. But that's not the only thing the water does. See what it does to our bodies? Our bodies are washed in pure water. Why is that so important? Do Do you remember what the last thing Moses did after they set up the tabernacle? Remember during the wilderness wanderings, they follow God's directions. They do everything they tell him to do. They set it up exactly. Everything is set up. And then Moses goes in and he cleanses everything, washes it, sprinkles it so that the entire tabernacle is sanctified. The entire tabernacle is clean. Why? Well, as soon as he's done, he hightails it out of there because then God's Presence, God's Shekinah glory comes into that tabernacle. You see, God is of purer eyes than to behold evil. He is light; in Him is no darkness. He cannot abide with men. So, how can His Holy Spirit dwell inside of us? How can Jesus make this offer? Because He was going to pour out His blood to wash us clean from all of our sin. Remember, as a a young believer, I didn't get this, that when I confess my sins and he cleanses me from all unrighteousness, that word all, it means all. And what I mean by that is past, present, and future. You're cleansed. And because of that, the spirit doesn't come in and then, oops, you sin, he lives, he leaves, and then you confess it, he comes back, and then, oops, you sin again, he leaves, and then you confess it, he comes back. That's not how it works. You're washed. You're clean. He dwells with you continuously because of the pure water that has washed you. See, this is only possible. We can only receive the Holy Spirit because of the sacrifice that Jesus made, because of the atonement that he purchased for us, because of Jesus' shed blood. Our our bodies are purified. Our conscience is fixed. And the Spirit is there at all times with us, leading us, guiding us. Reminding us of who we are. Let's go back to John 7. Jesus says, The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. I want to go back. I sort of skipped this word. I don't know if you noticed, but I want to go back because he's promising this specifically to people who believe. And I think there's a lot of confusion about that word. And that word is the key to the entire gospel of John. I I love John because he makes his thesis very clear. These are written that you may believe. You remember that? This is the gospel of belief, right? That's what it's all about. Well, we need to know what that means. What does it mean to believe? Well, in this passage, Jesus is equating belief with drinking. Do you see that? In the last verse, he just said, all who are thirsty, come to me. The one who believes out of his innermost being will issue forth rivers of living water. Jesus is equating believing with drinking. So I want you to think for a second, how is drinking like believing? The, The first thing that came to my mind was when I was in junior high, I raised chickens. I raise them for, for meat and for eggs. And, and what I would do as I raise these chicks is I would I would order them from a catalog. They would come in a box and I'd prepare their, I'd prepare their cage. I'd get it all cleaned out for them. I'd put the sawdust in there. I, w- I would get their I would put their mash in there for them to eat. I would have a, a light in there for them to gather under to stay warm. But most importantly, I would fill up a waterer for them. And I would I would mix vitamins into that water that would keep them healthy. And then as I, as I got the box of chicks, I would take a chick out and I would dip its beak in the water before I'd set it in the cage. Every single one, every single chick, I would dip its beak in the water and then set it in the cage. Dip its beak in the water and set it in the cage. And the reason I would do that is because when you dip a baby bird's beak in the water, it'll drink a little bit. And it'll realize, ooh, that's good. I like that. I need that. Oh, and That's where that is. That's where that is. In my cage, that's where the water is. That's where I go for water. They would get it. They would realize that's water, it's good, and that's where it is. Here's where belief comes in. Belief is when the chicks do something about it. It wouldn't help me at all if the chick just knew, hey, there's water, it's good, that's where it's at. Man, am I thirsty. You need to do something about it. You see, belief is then going and drinking. There's water. It's good. That's what I crave. That's what I need. I'm going to drink it in. I'm going to receive it in. What I want to do, I want to give you a, a simple definition for belief. Would you think about that? What is belief? I, I bet if I, if I polled you all right now, I'd get 117 different answers, right? I'm counting in base 11 right there. Uh, you, would, you would give me answers all over the map. And it's because belief is very nuanced. There's a lot to it. A definition needs to be really full. Well, I want to give you a simple definition that can stick with you as we go through John. What is belief? Belief is a decision to depend upon Jesus for my salvation. That's what Jesus is saying. It's a decision to depend upon Jesus. For my salvation. We can't save ourselves. We can't quench our own thirst. We need another source. And so he's saying, come to me. But here's the deal. After all of this evidence is presented, we need to make a decision. Are we going to believe? You see, belief, it's not just mental assent to a creed. It's not just thinking true things about Jesus. It's thinking true things about Jesus and then doing something about it. And that something you do isn't your own work. It's dependence. It's saying, I can't save myself. Jesus, save me. It's crying out. I need what you alone can provide. Rescue me. And Jesus will give you living water and it will transform you from the inside out. Jesus wants to quench your thirst with the Holy Spirit. He's offering it freely to you today. There's two responses that I see in the text. We see the first one is that of believers. They receive because they believe. You believe and receive. But what I want to do, I want to take you through the rest of this passage. We're going to read through it real quick. And we're going to see the second group. They speculate and reject. They speculate and reject. Back to John 7, 40. When some from the crowd heard these words, they said, this truly is the prophet. Others said, this is the Messiah. Now I want you to understand what these people are saying about Jesus. It's true. Jesus is the prophet. When Jews say the prophet, they're not talking about Elijah. If they talk about Elijah, they say Elijah. When they say the prophet, they're talking about the prophet that Moses prophesied of in Deuteronomy 18. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy. He is the prophet. Understand Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. You get that. So he's the prophet. He is the Messiah. What they didn't understand is he's going to be prophet, priest, king, God. They didn't understand everything about who he would be. But these are true things. But simply speculating true things about God is not belief. Is not receiving that living water into your innermost being. But some said, surely the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee, does he? Doesn't the scripture say the Messiah comes from David's offspring and from the town of Bethlehem where David lived? So the crowd was divided because of him. I, I hope that you guys see the irony in the crowd's response to him. Where is Jesus from? Where, you guys remember? Because we just celebrating Christmas. I know it's been a long time, right? Where is he born? Yeah, he's from Bethlehem. He is from Bethlehem. And here's the deal. If they wanted to know that, they could have figured it out. They could have asked somebody. They could have asked his mother. She was there. They could have asked his brothers. They were there. They could have checked, checked records. Those were public. They don't want to know. They don't want facts. They want to fight. Don't bother me with the facts. I just want to fight with you. That's how they respond. They're not going to look for evidence. They just want to cause division. There's no point in reasoning with people like this. And the passage goes on. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the servants came to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked him, why didn't you bring him? The servants answered, no man ever spoke like this. Then the Pharisees responded to them, are you fooled too? have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him but this crowd which doesn't know the law is accursed now this is this is you don't maybe don't understand the cultural significance of this when the chief priest sends out their soldiers to arrest somebody those soldiers obey okay you don't disobey a direct command for these soldiers to come back empty handed something miraculous has happened You have to understand, these are trained soldiers. These guys are trained just to respond, just to obey, not to question. That person needs to be captured. That person needs to be killed. That's what I do. I don't question. But with Jesus, they can't do it. No one ever spoke like this. Their hearts are arrested by his words. And you hear how the Pharisees respond? They say, you idiots. You don't know anything. Has any leader ever believed in him? They mock them. They insult them. Why? Because they believe the lie that might is right. They believe that if you're powerful, then you are correct. But what does Jesus often do? He uses the weak things, to shame, the strong, the things that are nothing to show his great power. It's amazing that they say this crowd doesn't know the law. Do you know whose job it was to teach them the law? They're indicting themselves with their very words. And, and, and then, this this is what happens next. This just blows me away. Nicodemus, the one who came to him previously and who was one of them, said to them, our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? Now, now I want you to understand this. Nicodemus is not asking a question because he needs an answer. Nicodemus is asking a rhetorical question. And here's what you need to understand about Nicodemus. Nicodemus was not a nincompoop. What I mean by that, remember when he comes to Jesus in John 3, and Jesus says, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't know this. You're the teacher of Israel and you don't know you have to be born again. When Jesus uses that phrase, that's actually a title for a person on the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus was the man on the Sanhedrin that everybody on the Sanhedrin went to to ask their questions about the law. Okay, you need to understand that. He is the top dog when it comes to questions about what the law means. So when he speaks right here, he's not just some nincompoop who's like, hey guys, shouldn't we maybe like test him first? No, he's speaking from a place of authority and he's speaking to people that he's taught. He's their teacher. You get with me? Okay, so is like an educator standing in front of his classroom telling them something. And listen to how they respond. You aren't from Galilee too, are you? They replied. Investigate and you will see that no prophet arises from Galilee. You don't talk that way to people that you're supposed to respect, to your teacher. But here's what's even more ironic about it, is they insult him by saying he's from Galilee. That's a major insult. But then they also show their own incompetence by what they say. Because Isaiah 9, 1, and 2 says, the people who dwell in darkness have seen a great light. And the people who dwell in darkness It's talking about Galilee. And they, are, they knew that was a messianic prophecy. And not only that, there is a prophet who came from Galilee. You know what his name was? Jonah. Jonah was from Galilee. If they just study the Bible, they would realize, oh yeah, there actually were prophets from Galilee. They're just showing their own incompetence. And this, this is the best of the best. I want you guys to understand these people are intellectually elite, but it doesn't help them. They're fools. They're blind. They're incompetent. Even though they know a lot of Scripture, what's happening right here is they lose their ability to even reason logically. We see this. Paul explains this in Romans 1. He says, For though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. This is what happens when Jesus offers you living water and you say, no thanks. When you reject his offer, your foolish heart is darkened. Your thinking becomes worthless. You'll claim to be wise and you'll show yourself over and over and over again to be fools. If you you look at the world, if you look at the the arguments that they present, you're like, what in the world? There's no logic here. Of course there's not. Don't expect to find a logical system from people whose foolish hearts are darkened. And the reason they're darkened is because they've rejected the gospel. You see, that's what they need. Don't think that they need you to correct their thinking. What they need is Jesus. What they need is the river of living water. Jesus today wants to quench our thirst with the Holy Spirit. And he wants to give it to all who are thirsty. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so I, I invite you today to come, to drink, to receive what your soul craves. I want to I close with a passage from the book, The Valley of Vision. I want to pr- read a prayer. It's called Spiritus Sanctus. It's just Latin for Holy Spirit. This, is just a, a, this book is a collection of Puritan prayers. Leah gave it to me about uh, three months before we got married, and it's been a real encouragement to me over the years. I highly recommend it. But let me just read the opening stanza of this prayer. It says, As the sun is full of light, the ocean full of water, heaven full of glory, so may my heart be full of thee. Give me thyself without measure as an unimpaired fountain, as inexhaustible riches. See, that's what we need. This Puritan, he understands. What I need is an unimpaired fountain. What I need is inexhaustible riches. When you come to him and you drink this water, he so transforms you from the inside out that he's constantly flowing out of you. You get that. This is an unimpaired fountain. He transforms you from the inside out. What pours into your soul will overflow into your life. But but you need to make a decision. And, And that's what I want to close with today is simply this question. Will you decide to depend on Jesus today? When you get saved, you make that decision to say, I can't do it. I need you. But you continue daily to depend upon him For your sanctification every single day you need him every hour you need him in every moment you need to make a decision to depend upon him and so walk in the spirit that he's made available to you will you decide to depend on jesus today let's close in prayer lord we thank you for the provision of all our needs We thank you, Lord, most for the provision of your Holy Spirit. The one who meets, supplies our every need, who satisfies our every longing. Lord, help us to be a people who are marked by dependence upon you. Lord, we need you. Teach us to believe. Help our unbelief. Open our eyes to see what it is that you're offering, that we're receiving, that we are living by. Lord, transform us from the inside out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.